Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at All About Women in early March 2020. It wasn't long after the massive bushfires and floods which devastated so much of our country, but just before COVID-19 shut down global industry and air travel and sent us all inside. In this session, which we're releasing today to celebrate World Environment Day, three of Australia's frontline activists come together to talk about their work, our planet and their hopes for the future, and they're in a conversation hosted by Madison Connaughton. So I, I guess to start, it would be good to talk about anger. This panel is called Green with Rage, and I think the idea of anger as an emotion that women are socialised to not um, act upon and to keep within themselves, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a yucky emotion. I'm curious, this summer felt like a point where a lot of people started to feel really angry about the way that our country has been run and the way that our climate has been destroyed and the way that our environment has been destroyed. And I wonder, in your own activism, has anger played a role? Um, has, it, has it been a catalyst for you to, to get into activism? I mean, Jean, I know you've talked about this in the past. Mm. What made you get into this school strike for climate? Um, did anger play a part in that? I think so, definitely. Um, and I don't think it's just me. I think the whole movement, what's made it so effective is that young people continuously see that our futures aren't cared about and that <laughs> the climate is something and action taken towards is just constantly swept under the rug and put off further and further and further. And as young people, it says to us that our futures don't matter and that we don't matter. And I think because of that, it's made young people feel so angry and so upset that they feel like they have to show up on the streets and they feel like they have to be pushing for this because there's no other options. Mm. Amelia, when you first got into climate activism, was mm. anger part of that? Because I, I remember being a teenager going to AYCC conferences and seeing you make speeches also as a teenager. Um, <laughs> but was that kind of part of what led to, to Seed's creation? Um, yes and no. Like, I think I was just thinking about it as you were speaking. And for me, it was more a really deep sense of responsibility. Um, like, as an Aboriginal um, person, as an Aboriginal woman, um, you know, learning so much about who I was from a young age and about the history of this country. Um, I guess it, it wasn't climate change that first made me angry. Like, it was the way our people were treated. Um, it was the way, you know, I saw my parents, like, with a, a black dad and a white mum and the, um, you know, learning about how... Um, yeah, unfortunately, like, mum's family didn't accept dad and, and yet they, um, you know, they they went against the odds and, and like, are still together and, um, you know, even just their relationship alone, I learnt so much from a young age about how the world works. Um, and so 
then when I started learning about the impacts of climate change and the, um, you know, the way that First Nations people are feeling the brunt of that, not only the impacts, but the actual destruction of our country from digging up, um, you know, fossil fuels, um, it was the deep sense of responsibility that I'd learnt from a young age that, like, our role is to look after country and to look after each other. And, and when, you know, and when that's not happening, um, or, or even, yeah, even when it is, like, we still have that deep responsibility. So I think it was... Yeah, like there's, but throughout the years, like, of course I've been angry. <laughs> um, but I think it's about, yeah, how you, how you sort of channel that anger. And one thing that we talk about, um, it goes back to, I guess, social movement theory throughout history, but um, there's a, a, a pattern of like anger, hope and action. And so like being able to, yeah, channel that anger into, into hope and then into action and, and really doing something about it. And so, because yeah, when you, when you let it build up and don't do anything, I think a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of young people um, can feel really disempowered and unsure of what to do. And so I think that's where, you know, we're seeing more and more um, ways that people can be taking action and more and more, um, yeah, action out there that gives people hope. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, it, anger's definitely an emotion, but I think the, from the beginning it, it came down to responsibility. How do you move from anger to hope? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's one that's a little bit different for everyone. I think it, like, depends on... It goes back to your values, I guess, around, like, what is the... You, you, the values um, that we have and then the connection to the issues. And um, I think when, you know, when you sort of explore that a bit more and figure out what, what else is going on, you know, for us, we... It's through conversations that we try and get to that point with people. Like, I really deeply believe that it's through having hundreds of thousands of conversations that, you know, connects with people's hearts and minds. Um, that's the way that we're going to create change. Um, and, and so I think it's, yeah, it's about being around other people as well. Um, but, yeah, you know, in, in the world that we live in right now where, like, social media and technology and everything is, is such a big part of our lives, I think it's being able to go back to the, the basics around human connection and looking at the, the incredible displays of people power um, across this country and around the world, and, and that really gives me hope. Mm. Yeah, this summer you sort of were... You were on the south coast... During the bushfires, is that right? And uh, we live we live down there. You live there. on the south yeah. coast, yeah. And and you had to evacuate to Roselle, where your parents. We, lived. we didn't have no, to evacuate, but you chose. <laughs> to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were we live in in uh, on the south coast, not all the way down where the fires were, but we were in the in the smoke from you know November onwards, mm. and we were breathing it every day, and we were choking on it every day, and just wondering what's going to happen. When's the movement coming? When's the when's the big statement from from our leaders coming, uh, surely this is the moment. And we were waiting and waiting and, and when, when the winds would change or, or the day's heat would just become unbearable and when we were nervous, we'd pack up and, and go to Sydney and stay at my parents' house. And it was the 4th of January. Um, it was that super, super hot day. It was like 49 degrees. Um, we went to Sydney. The winds had changed. They were suddenly winds, so the, the fires were now coming towards us. And, you know, we just had months and months, like everybody, I'm sure, of just feeling so angry, um, scared, really scared, um, sleeping with the blinds open, 
looking out the window, are we, is the garden on fire yet? I don't know, you know, how is this going to work? We've been told no one's going to come and get us, so, okay, we're responsible now. Um, and it was that build-up and that anxiety that I'm sure we've all been mm. carrying for a long time before this, but it was so present and it was so much in our lungs. And um, I, we got to Sydney and our little, our little person went, for a nap and it was so stinking hot and I was just like looking at the news waiting for the statement like we're going to do this at a national level this is our national consensus you know and um it just wasn't happening and I felt so angry and sad and frustrated and uh, my partner Jack and I had been talking a lot about how do we live a life where we're living in the States? Because we were living in the States and moving back and forth between Australia. And I suddenly started doing the math on our emissions and it was just like, this is horrific. We, we've got all these ideas about the future and about hope and, and Jack's work is deeply entrenched in hope and the future. And, and yet there's this separation between how we're living and what we believe in. Um, and I had... I'd just done a bit of study in sustainability um, to some online stuff and I'd learn about this idea of cognitive dissonance and I was like, oh, I am in a big, fat mess of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> like, I, I talk this way, but I'm getting on a plane every six months. Um, I'm going to have to do something. And if, if I can't see any leadership in my Twitter feed... I might have to do it for myself, um, and and that and that meant uh, uh, you know making a sacrifice. So we had a quick talk about it. I showed Jack a quick video that I made. I said, "Is this okay if I put this on the internet?" And um, and uh, I decided to give up my green card for for the states, which is basically an immigration status, which means you can work and something that's reasonably hard to get um, and took a long time for me to get. Um, and that's primarily where my work has been. And so I decided to, to let go of the green card and, and base ourselves here because the work is here, we're citizens here, we're voters here, um, and, and, and this feels like a powerful place for us to be. And for, for if we believe in this future for our, for our daughter, that, that hope, that vision of the future, then we've got to close that gap on that, that cognitive distance of action and belief. So it turns out it starts with, like, a sacrifice. Thank you. What has the reaction been from your peers within acting, like, or within uh, acting, theatre, TV, <laughs> the, the creative industries? But have people come to you and said, I'm thinking about doing this now? <laughs> I've tried to start a few awkward conversations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, uh, well, look, I'll just slightly veer to the left and just say, I'm talking about January 4th of this year. That's when I, like, I've been concerned for a long time. That's when I started talking about this publicly. Mm -hmm. These guys have been doing lots of work in their own in their own right, and I'm really a kind of like a representative of the layperson, and I do think that's a really important, really important role. Um, but I just want to acknowledge all their their incredibly hard work. So, in terms of people coming to me, like this is just the start of my journey, and I've been doing a bit more of like going out and and speaking with people uh, that we know to, to try and learn more because I just want to know about. Uh, 
this landscape and this big ecosystem of change, which has lots of different people doing lots of different kinds of, of things. So I, I'm, I'm really excited and I'm, I'm, I'm here for the long run, but I'm a, I'm a newbie. You're at the start. Yeah. But I think there's, a, there's such a huge role for people like yourself to, um, you know, use the platform and the, the privilege that you have, you know, to be able to talk to, to everyone and to influence other people. And because um, I think that's what it comes down to. It's like, you know, in terms of those conversations that I was talking about, people are most influenced by their family, their friends and people they look up to and, you know, people that they see on their screens. Um, and so there's such a massive role. And I think that's what that is what it comes down to. It's that sacrifice, but also recognising the, yeah, the privilege that um, that different people have um, and being able to use that privilege to um, in, in good ways. Um, yeah. And it's also, um, in many ways, showing how you are actually able to make that lifestyle change and it is a sacrifice, but often when we're looking at the climate crisis, it seems like the solutions are so intangible and far away, even though they are very much real and very much achievable and showing any, saying that in your position, you can do it and you're able to change how you're living and then change how you work to be able to lower your carbon footprint and be responsible in that way. And I, I feel like that's such an important statement in itself. Mm. Mm. Thanks, Jean. And giving <laughs> people something that they can imagine because I think yeah, often totally. it's hard to imagine something that you've never seen before. It's hard to imagine how you could be a teenager and start a you know, significant climate movement. Both of you yeah. have done that. It's hard to imagine how you could be an actor and not be able to travel around the world to work. And I think you know, giving people tangible examples of how that could happen um, plays a powerful role in this. I mean, I'm sure you've seen in your work that being able to speak and give people examples of times you've you've made um, you've done actions and they've had an impact yeah. that makes them feel like it's more possible to do that in their community or absolutely. their city or their country yeah absolutely I think you know in for anyone in life purpose is you know so so important um, in in our lives but then it's like yeah being able to see that impact and and make a difference I think um, like I I often always acknowledge that I truly believe I have one of the best jobs in the world um, and like it's it takes its toll but at the same time you know like I'd be doing exactly what I would be doing if I like wasn't in this role and I think so many of our people Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, you know do activism outside of their full-time jobs um, or on top of you know um, supporting families and and all of that so to be able to actually be paid to do this I think is absolutely amazing but um yeah like the to be constantly surrounded by people taking action every day like I I do feel super lucky that I'm constantly surrounded by hope um and so yeah I feel a deep responsibility to be able to actually share that with more people um so that more and more people can be surrounded by that too. Jean in the environment that you were in when you first started um I guess being an activist, although when does that even start? Is there a day? <laughs> but, but I wonder, like, you were in school mm. um, and was it harder to convince your peers that this was important or your teachers? Yeah, I think going into it, young people already recognise that it's an important thing because we've grown up constantly hearing about it. To us, it's, it's an inherent truth that the climate is changing and that it will impact us. I mean... We see it on the news growing up. We see it being talked about constantly. And again, we're seeing a complete lack of meaningful action. But um, 
the thing that was difficult was convincing them that striking is a totally viable option and that it's something we need to do because I think often people see, we, we often get asked like, oh, why aren't you just protesting normally? Or like, you can do this outside of school hours or why don't you write a letter or do something nice? Or and be less activist? Yes, be less activist. <laughs> and, and the thing is that, We've been doing that for years. We've been protesting on weekends. We have been writing letters. We've been signing petitions. And it's achieved something, but very little. But particularly when we're first starting, being able to tell kids, like, yeah, this is something that is really, really powerful. And your voice is important. And what you're protesting, what you're demonstrating for is important because as young people, we're always, always, always told that because we can't vote and because we don't have that official political or democratic power, what we say doesn't matter. So the, the difficult thing was less so convincing kids that, the climate, that climate change was important, that they should show up. It was more so convincing them that them doing this was actually really important and that they have a lot of influence and that they should sort of believe in themselves and know that they can make an enormous change. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself, like, learning from historical movements and, I mean, things like striking is a central um, plank of the union movement and mm -hmm. how that has pushed change. I, I wonder if, like, the generational conversation around climate is often, like, young people get it, old people don't. But I wonder if there's th learnings that you're taking from previous generations that have come through and, and pushed for change. Yeah, I think that... Um we, we definitely reflect on previous movements and change that has happened in the past a lot. And I, I think, though, what part of what makes us so unique is that, as young people in particular, we haven't grown up always learning about that or being taught, like, this is exactly how change happens or this is exactly how a movement should operate. So a lot of us is both learning from the past but then doing it our own way and not really playing by the rules and being like, OK, this is a new and pretty unique issue how are we going to combat it and how are we going to develop our own strategies and techniques to make a real and really enormous difference? Mm. Mm. I'm curious about tactics because <laughs> um, I feel like SEED has some really interesting tactics that you use. It's a very grassroots movement. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit about like what has worked, maybe what hasn't worked, mm. what you found really effective, um, and I guess what are you sort of using now and how have you refined your process? Totally. Um, so for the audience um, who, um, yeah, some people may be aware, um, yeah, very proud to be the national director of the SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Um, so we are a movement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people across the country um, taking action together to protect our land and water from the causes and impacts of climate change. Um, and, yeah, we, we're a branch of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, so, uh, you know, an organisation that's been around um, for over 10 years now. Um, it was actually the AYCC um, that put out a petition when I was in high school um, and I signed that petition and then got involved in this movement, realised that, you know, there were young people all across the country taking incredible action and together we could have a big impact, but also realised that the movement, you know, when I looked around, there were barely any other Indigenous young 
young people involved and the the ways that we were that the organization was talking about what needed to happen was really lacking the um, the role that indigenous people have to play um, in leading action on climate change and and so um, over the last five and a bit years now we've been building seed um, to have a, um, to have a team of, of staff supporting our volunteers all across the country um, running campaigns to yeah to, to take action on climate change and so um, a lot of the like there's there's two big ways that we um, that we see change as um, you know um, that we we see change being created and so part of that is movement building um, so bringing you know bringing together young people to be um, to support them to be leaders in their communities to be taking action you know at a local level but acknowledging that nationally we need to take action together um, to have a big impact and so that national action is the other side of our work which is our campaigns and so um, the main focus um, campaign that we have at the moment is supporting Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory who are standing up to protect their land from shale gas fracking um, and so yeah this is a campaign that's been going on for a really long time um, but you know ever since the Northern Territory government lifted the moratorium on fracking so like the pause on fracking up in the NT in 2018 um, that's where we've switched our our focus to targeting um, companies like Origin Energy, who are um, at the moment about to start fracking up there. Um, and so, yeah, through our movement building our campaigns, we really believe that there's so many ways that we can create the change that we need. Um, I think, I guess like one thing to acknowledge in talking about tactics and like what, what we can do and how that change is created, um, a big part of, of building seed as a branch of AYCC of, over the last few years um, is establishing, you know, from the very beginning that um, climate change and environmental issues aren't just about the environment, um, they're about people and it's not just an environmental issue, it's an issue of social justice and when you look at the root causes, um, you know, it goes back to, um, it goes back to the way that this country was founded, you know, the, um, through colonialism, um, the way that our people are treated less than others, um, so, you know, acknowledging, like, it, it gets really awkward, right, when you, when you really bring it to the root causes. Um, I think people can feel a bit uncomfortable, but it's, you know, the issues of white supremacy, um, of how, yeah, different people are valued less than others or more than others, um, the, the patriarchy, um, I think, you know, the, this audience is probably very, very familiar with that, um, but the way that, yeah, women are treated less than men, um, and that's reflected in the way we treat our Mother Earth, um, and... Um, and, and capitalism, and so the way that you know we we take and take and take without giving back, which deeply goes against um, you know indigenous values, um, and so I think it's about being able to see all the tactics that we take, ensuring that we lead with climate justice at the at the forefront. And so you know when I did get involved, we were talking about climate action, um, and and so much about you know the action and and putting a price on pollution and all of that. But unless we change the system, you know we change the entire like business as usual. Um, I'm talking about building a revolution, which I think you probably all would be on side with, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, like we're going to end up in the same place. Like it might not be climate change, but some other big issue. Um, and so I think that's where we've got to acknowledge that climate change is this huge opportunity where, um, where we actually can change business as usual. And, you know, with First Nations people leading and ensuring that First Nations people um, are thriving 
everyone can thrive. Because when you look at it, like we're on the bottom of the food chain. Um, and and I, I hate talking about us in that negative way, but that's the reality. And so if we're in a position where we, you know, can have control over our lives, then that's not going to take away from the, your control over your lives. Like that's actually everyone being able to have what they need to, um, to not just survive, but really, you know, um, thrive. And so I guess I'm not really talking about tactics, but no, it's like no. the the um, the yeah the background to every tactic that we have, you know, so every act action that we do, it's ensuring that that's led by our values. Well, that yeah. Mm. <laughs> I think that is talking about tactics, right? Because yeah. you're saying don't be reactive. Yeah. Be thoughtful with the things that you're doing. Yeah. And have a reason. And for think why long you're doing term, them. like you know, First Nations people globally talk about. Um, every decision that we do thinking about the impact on the seventh generation mm. um, and you know we, we always talk about the future of, of um, future generations but you know reality is right now people are feeling the impacts and so we're already feeling that but again we need to think about um, yeah the, the really long-term action that's needed. Mm. And sort mm. of on that actually I feel like often when we're discussing the climate crisis what you always hear is how it's going to impact everyone and how the climate doesn't discriminate. And I think that that's a really sort of one-sided, quite privileged way of looking at it because mm -hmm. you can see consistently it's First Nations people who are being hit first and worst by these issues. And on a more global scale, it's low-lying Pacific regions, which typically are developing nations. And when you see areas like Australia, we've been impacted so badly by the fires, but often we're the lucky ones, really, and we're in a really privileged position. And I think that as we navigate this space and continue these conversations, it's, it's so important to recognise how, on a global scale, it is oppressed peoples who are consistently more impacted than anyone else. I want to build on, on what you're both saying <laughs> with an idea, which is a little bit risky and I feel nervous even approaching talking about it, but um, when we talk about the kind of intersectional layers of the impacts of climate change and the causes, of course, of climate change, um, expanding that, that view out a little further, for, for me, I've kind of been thinking into spaces of who else is, who else is really vulnerable and who else is not in this room. Um, and I think we've missed a big piece of the puzzle in Australia and, and potentially globally, but in Australia it seems that we also need to talk about those people that are really economically exposed who work for, for say, the coal industry. Um, and, I, and we look at the figures and we know, what is it, like 72% of people are reporting, I'm really concerned, I really want action. And then we have that moment at the election where we're like, but why did it go this way? We all thought it was going... All the data says this. Why does it go this way? And there's now emerging data that says you can be both very, very concerned about seven generations ahead, or your grandchildren, at least, but you're really worried about paying your mortgage and feeding your kids. And that's really valid too. And if you come from a community that's been told for generations and generations, your identity is in coal mining, and then these city folk want to come and take away your identity, that's, that's a problem we actually need to address. Like, not only on a human level, because that's really important, the human level, but on a voting level as well. Because if we keep ignoring that, that kind of... Um, 
economic exposure and that uh, identity exposure as well, if we keep ignoring that and just saying, well, those are ignorant people and they're invested in a stupid, bad industry, that's going to that's going to leave us in the same stuck position. Um, and I know that's probably a slightly unpopular idea, but that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Well, what's, what can I bring? I don't have, you know, the same skills as these, these guys do, but I can communicate and my job is to feel empathy. Mm. Um, so, so maybe there's a way we can work on building those bridges between, between people who, who aren't, you know, raking in the billions and billions of dollars from raping our mother, like the people who have been told this, this work is good work, uh, you're powering the nation, it's decent, honest work. Um, how, do, how do we have that conversation? How do we talk about transition? Mm. How do we look at m models like Germany and go, okay, it's not perfect, but it's going really well like how are we going to look after jobs and say you know we're going to transition but we're going to do it quickly because we need to do it quickly mm. but we're going to do it really thoughtfully and uh, economically responsibly as as well so so everyone's involved in this future mm. image because I think when people are afraid that fear can be really easily misdirected right if people are clearly afraid about what is happening to the climate and so you know, if someone wants to be cynical, it is very easy to direct that fear towards a fear that your job is, is going to go and there's going to be nothing else. You know, it is a political choice not to present any sort of transition plan or to say that, um, that gas is the best transition that we could possibly make. Like, there are political choices being made in how we manage that transition mm. um, and how, you know, marginalised people's fear is being used to hold back climate action or climate justice, um, I think it's really interesting that you want to speak to people who, you know, I, I don't think that there's been a real um, transition plan put to someone who works in, at, in a coal company at the moment um, by a politician. I think it's been yeah, put by activists a lot, but I don't think... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think there's, is that conversation has, has been around, but yeah, not at the level that it needs to be and not in a really genuine way. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you look at the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, um, you know, what, which has some of the um, yeah, largest, most polluting, like, brown coal um, power stations and, um, and, like, the Hazelwood mine that was on fire. Like, the, that's a community who... Um, you know, know that the coal industry is not good for them um, in terms of, like, the, the health impacts, like, the number of people who've had asthma from that, that fire. But, um, you know, like, my partner's in town and um, his grandfather um, and family, you know, suffered black lung from working, working in the mines. Um, you know, there's... The people, people know about it, but it's, like, there's no alternative that's been given. And so I think it's, it goes back to that, you know, conversations, changing people's hearts and minds, connecting with people at a, at a really genuine level to be able to figure out what is the future there? And so, you know, the, some of the work that the Australian Youth Climate Coalition um, have been doing is building up young people there um, and young people being able to actually be asked, what does what is your vision for the future? Like, what does that want to look like? What's your vision for the valley, like the Latrobe Valley? Um, and so it's happening, but, yeah, it's not, it's not happening fast enough. Um, and, yeah, in some places, um, you know, like there's a proposal for, um, like, when, you, when we talk about Adani, like the um, Adani um, who, you know, are planning to build that big coal mine in Queensland, Adani also have plans to build renewables in Queensland. But... I don't know if um, others would agree, but, you know, when you look at Adani's um, track record of treating Indigenous people in the way they have, 
that's not going to change when they build a big renewable energy project. So, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it goes back to that changing business as usual, but really actually, yeah, genuine conversations with community being like, what is your vision for this place? What do you want it to look like? Um, and then the resources going into to being able to build that vision. Mm -hmm. I think the empathy question is really interesting in this. I mean, with three women on stage and I think, um, especially when I look at this, um, like at the youth climate movement, and there are many of them at the moment, it seems like they are dominated, especially as young um, young people, by young women. Mm. Um, and I wonder if this conversation we're having about empathy and needing to go out into communities and talk to people, um, if that is kind of an activism that is being led by women or having sort of a... Um, a less um, that we just have to do it and do it now and this is what we're going to do, that there is a, a way to do this that is more um, empathetic. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if... The, is that right, that the, the youth climate movement is, is... There are a lot of women in the leadership. It's very, very female-dominated. Yeah. And something interesting about it, actually, is that we're still not 100% sure why. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just sort of happened and then we realised and we're like, wow, this is how it's happening everywhere and particularly within the school strike movement because we're all connected online and there's hundreds of people on these giant messenger chats and stuff and you look through it and it's it's majority female so I think that it's a whole variety of factors and I, I think the fact that there is a lot of empathy involved and that's so core to this activism has been part of it but I also think it goes back to the fact that people who are traditionally more oppressed or come from a less privileged position are more likely to get involved in activism and feel a need and a responsibility to take action and to get more involved, I think. Um, and it's sort of young women in particular, I feel like this space for, for a really long time, and we're still actively being told that we should be quiet and that this anger is ridiculous and we're just hysterical, but we're also told... <laughs> to be quiet and to be reserved and to not be leaders often. And I, I think that spaces like the AYCC and SEED, as well as more recently the School Strike Movement, has given young people this space. And it's told them that you matter and you're important and we want you to lead. And a lot of young women feel really empowered by that opportunity and really take hold of that opportunity. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a female-dominated area. Mm. Mm. Um, we're going to have some questions um, from the audience. If you have anything, pop your hand up in a couple of minutes. But just before we get to that, I guess I, I want to know what you're hopeful about. I think that moving to that second step. Um, but I wonder what you think that like a, a female-led climate movement can push for in the... In the um, next few years? Like, what could it actually look like? Um, maybe, Millie, if you've done yeah, this work. Um, I think just on, on the note around, like, um, leadership from women, um, I don't know, I, I can't... I don't fully know how to articulate it yet, but I always struggle because, like, you know, um, women are totally leading social movements around, you know, around the whole world right now. And, like, black women, First Nations women, like, that is the future. Um, but at the same time, I think we do need to be careful in terms of how we how we assume that, you know, women, um, women are the 
are the only ones that can can be empathetic in a way. Like, I'm not saying that's what we're saying, but I think I really struggle because it's like the the stories that we tell ourselves are so have such a big impact on how we live our lives. And and when our men are being told that they're not empathetic or they can't be emotional or this and that, like that's where you look at, you know, um, like my dad does work back home up in Lismore working um, with Aboriginal families that are impacted by drugs and alcohol, domestic violence, sexual abuse, all of that. Like it's really hard work. And I think dad's been a real, you know, well, mum and dad um, have been real... Um, rocks for me in my life but I think you know the role that men have to play is so critical and we can't under underplay that and I think you know our men are, are struggling right now to like have purpose and to have the ability to be themselves and to you know for years we've been that you know the empathy and the connection has been stripped back because like the yeah the, the system has told us that you have to act this way and you have to be strong and you have to do this and and so I think it's like yeah we we can we need to be able to talk about that in a way that doesn't restrict ourselves from being able to actually change again change business as usual um so I think yeah more power to all of us and mm -hmm. you know and we don't just live in a in a binary world of men and women you know shout out to our um you know our siblings and family out there who yeah who don't fit in that non-binary um yeah who yeah don't fit in the binary world and binary structure um but the question was what gives me hope okay. <laughs> sorry <laughs> um I have so much hope like I genuinely I think I was talking to one of our donors recently and you know real talk sometimes you have to put on the hope when you do this work because that's your job and you know and we've got to inspire people but um, I genuinely have so much hope. Like in the last couple months, um, I think we, you know, the the summer, and it was more than just summer. Like back home, our family was, um, well, not 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 my family directly, but you know, mob back at home were fighting fire in August. Like it wasn't just summer, um, and so we've seen these impacts, um, and people have been fired up, <laughs> fired up, um, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. Um, and, and I just think that 2020, like, you know, it just 2020 is this year that I genuinely believe that it's got to be a tipping point. Like, we've got to create this change. And, and it's happening. Like, you know, if you're not already on board, get on board or risk being left behind um, and having no choice but to, you know, run up and catch people. Um, but, yeah, I, I really think that there's so much that's, that's, um, that gives me hope right now. It's young people. It's First Nations people. Um, it's people actually asking the question, what can I do, and then figuring it out. Um, and yeah, and the solutions are, are big and they're possible. Um, you know, we're lacking the political will, but again, like those politicians are the ones that are going to be the ones that are going to be left with no choice but to follow. It's the solutions are you know are with the people, um, and we totally have what it takes to be able to do this. So mm -hmm. yeah, I have so much hope. <laughs> Genuinely, I do. <laughs> um, in line with uh, with what I was saying before. The vision for me right now would be one where there's lots of really unexpected alliances um, and I think we do, we, we've been forced so far into our silos, it's terrifying to talk to somebody who thinks differently. Um, if we can reconnect with those, those things that, that really do connect us on this issue, it's so easy to do. It's our air, it's our water. None of us are here without that, right? So... My hope and my vision would be for 
a, a huge group of really unlikely allegiances that come together and say common sense over politics because we've been pushed around in terms of politicising an issue that should not be politicised. It should be basic needs for everybody. Clean air, clean water. Um, so bringing those people together... Men, women, everyone in between. You know, we. This is not. This is not an issue that uh, has has time or room to to be boxing people. It's got to be everyone, and and we've got to push in that huge group of unlikely people. We've got to push for electable policies that include everybody. And. And the policies, again, I'll just say again, they must be electable. They they must be forthright, you know, Labor... Labor well, I said I wasn't going to talk about something, but... Um, <laughs> I'm going to wind that back and just say, having, having vision is really important. Sticking with it and working out what we didn't quite get right and where our little failings were, that's OK. Like, it's OK to, to, to have not quite got it right, to, to go back to the drawing board, build on what we've already got, include everybody and create a really electable platform that has a vision for everybody. I think it's, it's interesting because I feel like I can be quite a pessimist and then also have quite a lot of hope at the same time because the fact of the matter is that Things are getting worse and our carbon emissions are still increasing. And yes, we have these giant movements, but also you see leaders not leading time and time again. But also I think that even just this past year, seeing the climate movement transform from a thing that seemed to be very lefty or like not everyone was part of it to something that everyone was on board with and everyone is part of somehow. And you go from, I think about during, um, around January 10th, I think, there was that bushfire rally, which was organised in about 10 days and had 40,000 people show up. That wasn't happening a year ago. <laughs> and I, I think that we're reaching this tipping point and the more people that get involved from all walks of life as well, it's, it's not just those who are already on board with activism, but people who are new to it and people who are learning and are stepping up and becoming leaders and... Um, joining, uh, creating groups in their own community and getting involved in national and global initiatives. I, I think that's what's going to shift things because we have to remember that politicians aren't leaders, they're followers. And we, the people, need to shift that because it, the, the fact of the matter, they want to keep their jobs and they need, to, they need to represent what the people think. And if we, as a group, we need to force them to do the right thing because clearly they're not stepping up now. Mm. Let's get to some questions. Um, there are some ushers with roving mics, so just stick your hand up. Um, and I'm not going to make a joke about be, make your question a question or something. You know, to put a question mark at the end of it would be amazing. Um, <laughs> we've got one just here. Thank you to the wonderful panel today, um, echoing many the thoughts, I think, of many of the people in the room. Um, I just wanted to ask if the panel is aware of the climate change bill that Zali Stegall is putting up mm. and if that's something that you guys are able to, to support as um, seems to me the only tangible thing on the table to push our politicians to take a bipartisan approach sooner rather than later to solving, and, solving this issue or getting plans in place to address it. 
Jean, you worked with. Yeah. Um, so, uh, School Strike for Climate, we are, we have sort of stated our support for the bill, and I think that it needs to be seen right now as it, it's almost in a way square one. Like it is the bare minimum. We need to be carbon neutral for 2050, and we need to have a transition in place for those in employed in fossil fuel communities. Um, I, I, I think that. It's something that could be improved upon. Clearly, I think that it needs to have more of an emphasis, particularly on First Nations leadership and the role of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it is something that is quite exciting that that is even being proposed to government. And I think that it definitely has the potential to go quite far. Does everyone know what this bill is or would it be helpful to give a bit of context? So um, I'm sure people are better placed, but my understanding is that it's based on a UK bill from 2008 and it would basically set a target for Australia to reach net zero emissions by 2050, although we're still, we're already in that in the Paris agreements, but that's one to one side. Um, and then it would also create, um, is it the Climate Change Authority? Am I getting that right? Climate Change Commission, which would be sort of a statutory body that would work with the government. Um, and then there are targets, but it's quite a broad um, broad bill, I think, to sort of set that 2050 target is, is my understanding of it. Um, and it's being put forward by independent um, uh, MP for Warringah, Zali Stegall. Yeah. Do you have views on that? Um, yes and no. Like, it's, it's not a big priority for us in a way in terms of, like, the work we're doing on the ground with communities. Um, and, and so I think because... The way we've also got to think about the change that needs to happen is both politically the change that we need to see, but then also look at the you know the business side of things, and that's where like pressuring Origin Energy as you know a really large energy um, corporation, like there's a huge role that we have there around corporate campaigning as well as political campaigning. So um, yeah, not to underplay this, but I think um, yeah the role of independence is super critical, and I think you know um, like at AYCCNC we're non-politically affiliated, and that gives us the the power to be able to push all parties and you know and independence to be better and so I think yeah the leadership of Zali has been incredible and I think um you know there's been amazing people in that community of Warringah standing up and and being able to push for that and and you know to to push against you know someone like Tony Abbott is is mm. is what we need to be seeing more of um <laughs> uh yeah I agree like there's you know it's it's the best of what we've got out there right now but I think we do really need to look at um um, yeah, like it's, I think people might be familiar with the Green New Deal, um, a, a, a policy platform in the US that um, has been pushed um, in, in some similar ways. And I think, yeah, there's big conversation that needs to happen around, yeah, having policies that include everyone um, and have, has First Nations leadership and, you know, is, yeah, really genuinely taking that forward. It's, it's not my particular area of expertise around that policy stuff. Like I said, you know, the work that we do is in, in, in community. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's the best that we've got out there at the moment. Um, and yeah, we just, we, we need more of it. Mm. Mm. And I think one thing that does make it quite exciting is the fact that it's, it's kind of beyond politics in the sense that it's not, it, since it is an independent proposing it, it's not, oh, this is a lefty issue or this is a conservative issue. It, it gets beyond that because I think that's been such a roadblock 
um, to having climate justice and having meaningful climate action for years because it's it, it's such a party-affiliated thing. It's it, That narrative's been shifted and it's ridiculous because we shouldn't be debating whether it's real or whether we should be doing anything. We should be debating exactly what policies we should be implementing and how we can get uh, to a safe space in as quick a time as possible. Um, and it, we need to frame it as something that isn't a political issue because it's not a political issue. It's an incredibly large human issue and it's an everybody issue. And like you were saying beforehand, this is so far beyond politics. It's the air we breathe, it's the water we drink. And I, I think that this helps to change that narrative. And that's been really exciting, particularly considering that Zali is sort of more economically a conservative mm. person, but then taking this quite bold um, climate plan. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, do you have a view on the bill? Oh, I think these guys. Yeah, they got it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do we have any uh, more questions? Yes, heaps. Um, Maybe. Okay, that one. Yep, down the back. Hi. Uh, Last year, towards the end of last year, I noticed that Uluru was given back to the Indigenous people, and we were no longer allowed to climb Uluru, which I thought fantastic. But then when I read more about it, I, I learned that was a, a program that t- was 20 years in the making. It was, it was committed to at least 20 years ago when it was acknowledged that this makes heaps of money for white people for tourism. We can't do it tomorrow. And I, and I felt it was really inspiring to see that 20 years ago this line was drawn in the sand. We're definitely going to hand back Uluru but we need to figure out all the different stakeholders and how they're going to be impacted and give ourselves enough time to do that. And I just wondered whether... It's quite a symbolic um, example, and I just wondered whether as a microcosm it could be used for you know, much more bigger, more complex change that you're trying to create. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, around the time that... Um, the you know the climb was closed. Like my newsfeed was just absolutely flooded with. Um, I don't know if that was the same for everyone or if it's just got a big black newsfeed. Um, but um, the images of like the chains being taken off um, was incredibly powerful. And I think that you know whether you know whether it was mob from Uluru or beyond, I think just that moment of like feeling free of chains was was a pretty big symbolic. Um, deal for a lot of people. I think it should have happened a long time ago um, and a lot of things should have happened a long time ago. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure um, what the question was, but I sorry. Wonder, I wonder if maybe part of it is I, the 20-year the Uluru transition plan, mm. I guess part of the idea was to make all the white people that made money off it as comfortable as possible. (laughs) And given the amount of time we have to act on climate, the reality is that some people are going to be uncomfortable. Absolutely. And I just wonder if those transition timelines, how much are they to make people in power feel comfortable? Yeah. I mean, no change ever happens without people feeling uncomfortable or having to sacrifice something. So... um, yeah, like, in moments where, like, a room can feel real awkward and stuff, like, that's where I'm like, yes, I've done my job. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know what more to sort of say on that. Do we yeah. have more questions? Um, maybe 
Where are we? Are we on this side? We can go to... Hi, um, I have a question that's, I think it's fairly controversial and it's a bit pessimistic. Um, so sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, um, in light of uh, sort of the uncertain future that we're facing and also the fact that a large part of the problem is this, um, you know, capitalism and endless progress and stuff and more specifically um, the problem of uh, population growth I'm wondering if I could get um, comments on... Basically, I'm asking, should we be having children? <laughs> um, I, I think that... Strong view on this. Yeah, I, I, have, I have an opinion. <laughs> so, the thing is that when we're looking at population growth, uh, we see it continuing to grow. However, um, it's not quite... like The areas where they're having the most children, where there is the most growth are typically in um, less developed countries, which emit less. The issues are often more Western, more developed countries, where everyone is using pretty much an unfair share of the carbon budget. And we can continue to grow as a population and still live sustainably. You can see indigenous peoples were able to give, live for millennia in a way that was completely sustainable. And whilst we do need to use some of those tactics and adapt other things for the sheer size of people. I think that often it's quite a whitewashed way of discussing population growth because it's, it's Western countries that are typically predominantly, predominantly white countries where the more people, it seems to be more and more carbon emissions and the more responsible we are. But we need to shift our lifestyles because, frankly where most people are situated, the vast majority of people aren't responsible for the climate crisis. The vast majority of people emit a really small amount. Um, and I, I just think that we need to be wary in how we discuss issues like this because we need to not put the blame on people when it's really not their fault. Mm -hmm. And whilst there is like quite a meaningful conversation to be had about whether we should be having children knowing that they're being born into... The situation that we're in right now, I, I don't think that we should be blaming it on those people when it is well, Western countries and when it is these enormous institutions and governments and corporations that are the bigger emitters. Mm -hmm. um, Yale, you have a child. <laughs> Where is she? Um, you know, I'm really, real, really glad I didn't know what I know now. Because I don't know if she'd be here. Because it's, I mean, it's really overwhelming. Um, I'm terrified. I, I have to use the anxiety that I feel to, to act and to do. Um, yeah, I totally hear your question. I would love to have another kid, but I... I don't know if I will. Yeah. It's hard, I think, when it's. Oh, a you don't have to clap. <laughs> that is some sad shit. Don't clap it. <sighs> but I think that the kind of what this is about is like we can have these macro conversations, but when it's at a personal level, mm. it becomes really hard. And like personal sacrifice or personal choices. When, when they're, like, you know, getting a train instead of driving or something, that's, you know, that is 
less, you know, it may take you longer to get to work, but I think these conversations are really hard to have. Conversations about your job, conversations about those really personal. Things. Who has a tissue? I need a tissue. This group of women must have a, a tissue. One. I know coronavirus is real, but I need a tissue. Oh my god. Yeah. Thank you. But you I guess I feel really safe. Um, I mean, I think Jane said a lot. Um, for like, for me as an Aboriginal woman, um, and for you know thinking about the fact that the fact that our people, they were, you know, attempted genocide, right, and like the ongoing impacts of genocide are still being faced right now. So you know, my partner's in the room, and he, if I was ready, he'd be wanting to have kids right now. <laughs> Um, but we, you know, I, I feel really lucky to be a stepmother, um, have two, yeah, beautiful... Oh, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, like, and even when I think about them, you know, it is, it is really hard to think about that future. But I think at least for us as Aboriginal people, um, I don't know, it, 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 it's a really awkward conversation, right? But I think that, like, part of us having kids is... Is, is a form of resistance and us actually being able to ensure that our people are around. Um, and so absolutely agree that it's it's not necessarily the numbers, like it is the numbers, but it's the expectation of the way, the lives that we live and how we live. And like, we can't have that expect, expectation that, um, that, yeah, that we are able to have all the things in the world and, um, and, and all of that. We need to actually really deeply question how we're living. Um, but also that, yeah, the blame shouldn't be on people who have done the least to cause the issue and benefit the, the least, um, but are the most um, severely impacted. Mm. Mm. We have about two minutes left. <laughs> Shall we do one more question? Yeah. yeah? All right, last question. <laughs> um, maybe just on the left here. Thank you. While I have great sympathy for the mining industry people, I can't understand why there's this feeling almost of religious sanctity around mining and not for any of the other industries, say tourism, um, agriculture, etc. Now, 30 years ago, I was teaching in schools about global warming and its effect, and it was obviously known about. We did no transitioning in the last 30 years. 60 years ago, when I had my first economics lesson, we were talking about the sad plight and it was my first economics lesson. The sad plight of the ostrich farmers in South Africa because feather boas were going to go out of fashion. And these poor African farmers would be losing their way of, um, their way of life. And that just showed that there is fashion, things come and go. What would happen if 120 years ago we said we won't have the motor car? What about all those people who work in stables? What about the horses? I'll just say one minute left. That's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> is there a question at the end of the... Yes, that was why the first Thank question. You so much saying to... Why is there this feeling of sanctity around mining, yeah. which it must never, ever change? Mm. Yeah. Whereas if we had started 30 years ago, we could have been transitioning. Mm. 
That's what and I what think. What about the about. other industries which are suffering? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think mining's so fascinating. I've been kind of in the very early stages of trying to dig into what that what is that identity piece? Like both respecting it and trying to dig in and understand is it a, is it because for the people on the ground it was such a physically challenging job that that it needed to be lifted up and connected with uh, mateship uh, with Australianness with uh, with that kind of hard work as a as a sort of identity payment for the really rigor- rigorous work I'm, I'm not sure I do think it's it's fascinating and and it, it does it needs to be sort of lovingly unpacked so that we can then start to move on and say, we th- used to think this way about this industry and just because we did it and we engaged in it doesn't mean that people who did that were bad people or, or devalue their work or their hard work. Um, it just means we've now realised we... It, it was actually very damaging for our environment and we do need to transition out of it. But I think that's so fascinating. I'm really interested in unpacking that. Some, there's some association with Australianness and mining. I think it's also... You just have to look at where the political donations are coming from for the big political parties and the, and the, and the media as well. So, yeah, the, the, totally. All the donations, it's out there, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but but at the same time, it's I guess this is going back to the stories that we tell ourselves. And when we, so um, I recently did a um, messaging fellowship, communications and messaging fellowship, and um, there was this one big point that stood out to me. There are lots of points, anyways. Um, but when you look at the way that we talk about the like the Australia's addiction to fossil fuels or like political addiction to fossil fuels, even just that in itself, saying that we're addicted to it. What do you think about when you think about an addiction? It's really hard to break, right? And so the stories that we tell ourselves and the language that we use is really important. And so we actually need to be talking about it's politically possible, it's 100% possible, um, you know, and not say it can't be done because, like, we've bloody shown people before that change can be can be created. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's making sure that it's possible. It's telling the stories of where it's already happening and showing people examples of that. So we can do it, we absolutely will. We need to, yeah... We need to strip back, you know, the power that a very small percentage of people have um, and put that power back in our our hands. (laughs) Very briefly. Oh, I'm trying to find my train of thought. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that... Uh, it's it's such an interesting thing in how, like, uniquely Australian we seem to put it, but I, I, I think that... The way we need to shift this conversation isn't that, um, oh, we're going to have to break it somehow. Because the fact of the matter is that already, economically, people are shifting towards renewables. And that's where people are going, just at a rate that isn't fast enough to prevent the worst impacts of the climate crisis. So we can't talk about it as if it's, are we going to shift away from this? Because we already are, just very slowly. So the way we need to change this conversation is, this is happening, this is very real, but what we need to do is create a transition plan so that nobody is left behind. So this isn't a scary thing that we need to keep putting off and that will sort of shock us and then we have to somehow shift things around. Instead, we can say, okay, we knew this was happening, we planned for it, and we made sure that everyone was okay and people weren't left without jobs and people weren't left um, not being able to pay for their, like, feed their families and, and live sustainably. And we can't demonise those who are working in these industries because they're just trying to live and they're just, it it, it is their livelihoods really. We need to frame it in this way and show that 
there are great opportunities in shifting to renewables and we are going to be taking everyone with us. Mm. Mm. Right. Everyone, please keep that clap going and help join me in thanking Jean Hinkcliffe, Yael Stone and Amelia Telford. Anger, hope, action. Anger, hope, action. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.